to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 29th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. This Wild Trekker podcast is the first in a seven-part series devoted to the human machine, and I trace the history of the human machine from the High Renaissance in the 16th century to the Enlightenment in the 18th century, looking each time at a different medical, scientific, mathematical, or philosophical investigator who found the metaphor of the human machine very intriguing. Andreas Vesalius was the leading anatomist of the High Renaissance, as well as personal physician to Emperor Charles V. Vesalius was of the university world. He made his contribution as a scholar in a competitive world, focusing on a single discipline with great intensity. He was a humanist, and as such, devoted himself to preparing standard texts of some classical authors in a more accurate and annotated translation than had previously been available. He was an original anatomist, struggling loose not just from Aristotle and Galen, although he readily acknowledged their intellectual heritage, but also from the enslavement of European anatomy in his day, which was largely based on the unquestioning acceptance of the tradition and authority with which Aristotle and Galen in particular had come to be invested through late classical times and the Middle Ages. The single masterpiece which marks the life of Vesalius is On the Fabric of the Human Body, and it's often referred to simply as the Fabrica, which is the shortened form of its original Latin title, De Humani Corporis Fabrica Libri Septem. The work, first published in 1543, consists of seven books, The Nature of All the Bones and Cartilages, The Ligaments and Muscles, the intricate series of veins, the distribution of the nerves that go to the muscles and also the offshoots belonging to all the other parts, the construction of the organs that serve nutrition, the heart and the parts that serve it, the harmony of the brain and the organs of sense, 
without repeating the arrangement of the nerves that take their origin from the brain. In addition, a shorter work by Vesalius is extant, The Epitome, a brief digest of the far longer Fabrica, which is also published in 1543. Another work I find extremely interesting is Andreas Vesalius's first public anatomy at Bologna in 1540, an eyewitness report by Baldassar Hessler, which consists of lecture notes taken by one of the great anatomist's early students. The interest of this latter publication is that Hessler elaborates on the public and very controversial context in which Vesalius makes his anatomical demonstrations, and this work is only published for the first time in Sweden in 1959. One possible interpretation of the word fabrica in the title of the Vesalian masterpiece is that the body is a fabrica, in medieval Latin a workshop. The body is God's workshop, in which bodily processes and mechanisms can be analyzed, accurately measured, drawn, and described. Charles Singer, the historian of science, writes that it must not be translated fabric, nor does mechanism quite render it. In classical usage, it means an artisan's workshop, where something is going on, and by transference, the art of trade itself. This distinction is reflected in modern German, fabrique, factory, and rather better in French, fabrique, which means both the process of making and the place where things are made. In Renaissance Latin, the word has kinetic associations. A good, if unliterary, rendering would be works or workings. De humani corporis fabrica would then be on man's bodily works. It's always works in action, living anatomy, that Vesalius is trying to describe, and as a corollary, he has always in mind the body as a whole, the living body. In support of the translation workshop, however, is L. R. Lin's translation into English of the epitome, according to which the veins suck out from the intestines, especially the small ones, whatever is suitable for the making of the blood, together with the aqueous and thin refuse of the stomach's concoction, and carry it to the workshop of the liver, where the blood is made. help seeing a parallel between the fabrica on the one hand and the contemporary 16th century writings by Nicholas Copernicus on the machinery of the world or universe. Accordingly, the Polish astronomer writes in On the Revolutions of Heavenly Spheres, also published in 1543, when I'd meditated upon this lack of certitude in the traditional mathematics concerning the composition of movements of the spheres of the world, I began to be annoyed that the philosophers, who in other respects had made a very careful scrutiny of the least details of the world, had discovered no sure scheme for the movements of the machinery of the world, which has been built for us by the best and most orderly workmen of all. 
So Copernicus is referring to God as an orderly workman. Back to the Fabrica. It sets the experimental study of human anatomy as well as the practice of medicine on a new footing, establishing the breadth of an entire scientific discipline, much as Aristotle had done with biology. The Fabrica breaks with Galen's habit of making inferences about human anatomy from dissections of Barbary apes, pigs, goats, and other animals. Much like Aristotle in ancient Greece and Galen in the Hellenistic world, Vesalius synthesizes leading knowledge about human anatomy during the Renaissance, developing a rigorous and more empirical method to test that knowledge based on critical observation and personal experiment. Given that Vesalius can work free from the Hellenistic taboos affecting Galen concerning the human body, he's in a position to perform human dissections himself and make detailed critical evaluations of the results. Dissection for Vesalius is a public enterprise conducted in the presence of faculty members and several hundred students in Bologna, Padua, and other places. Well, you know, an anatomical theater in Padua still exists. I've actually seen it there, although in its current form it may have been built several decades after the time of Vesalius. The theater consists of a large windowless room with rows of seats steeply overlooking a central confined space consisting of a table where dissections are performed and, <laughs> according to local lore today, there's a secret trapdoor in the floor which enables the cadaver to be quickly dumped into a hidden canal beneath the theater in the event of a raid by the Inquisition. I find this hard to believe because popes attended some public dissections of human cadavers. They found it very interesting. Remember that when Vesalius does his public demonstration of anatomy of a human cadaver in Bologna, it's in the nave of a Catholic church. Dissection has quite different religious associations for Vesalius. It helps them to uncover and scrutinize the hidden designs of God. Marvelous indeed, Vesalius writes in Book Two of the Fabrica, is the ingenuity of the Creator, who wills that from linked bones should grow forth a bodily substance by means of which the bones should at once be bound securely and accurately together and their joints contained so that they should not easily be pulled apart by violent motion, and that this substance should by its hardness be able to survive constant and untiring movement without suffering damage. Again, so that the bones and cartilage should follow quickly when pulled by the muscles, it was necessary that the substance of ligament also be soft, and in this sense weak, but strength and hardness are incompatible 
with weakness, infirmity, and softness. Dissection of the human frame will show you how great, then, was the skill of the Creator, who fashioned a material that combines both these natures and performs both of these tasks and is, in addition, resistant to injury. The Fabrica underlines the importance of printing and publication in the broad dissemination of new scientific ideas. The Fabrica's rich woodcuts, developed according to Vasari by Jan Stefan van Kalkar in Titian's studio, establish a high standard and help to explain why Vesalius's work is quickly plagiarized in many editions. The Fabrica is noteworthy for several reasons. It's a public document designed for widespread dissemination, restoring to anatomy the prestigious role it had once enjoyed in Greek antiquity, and directing anatomy to support the practice of medicine. In praising and soliciting the contribution of Charles V as patron and emperor, Vesalius expresses this latter position in no uncertain terms. In our present age, he writes, which by the will of the gods is subject to your majesty's wise rule, things have taken a turn for the better, and medicine, along with all other studies, has begun so to come to life again and to raise its head from the profound darkness which enveloped it, that in several universities it has beyond all argument come close to recovering its former glory. Nothing was more urgently required than knowledge of the parts of the human body, a knowledge that had become almost extinct. Well, the Fabrica is a practical guide to dissection, a how-to book, as we would say today. This is particularly evident in Book 2, for example, where Vesalius describes the Renaissance tools of dissection. <coughs> razors, small knives for cutting pens, ordinary knives, boxwood knives, hooks, styluses, siphons, needles, thread, saws, shears, mallets, and tubes, providing a macabre illustration of these tools arrayed on a wooden table to prove his point. Like they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. Vesalius is one of the leading Renaissance scholars to publish the view that humans have machine-like functions and that human anatomy can be more easily understood according to the machine model. In this respect, Vesalius owes an intellectual debt to some classical and medieval views according to which God's creation has order and rationality and is thus measurable. Drawing evident parallels with Renaissance technology, Vesalius also sees the human body as a complex series of intricate mechanisms which should be observed and experimented upon in the dissection of human cadavers to bolster the science of anatomy and serve as a foundation for the practice of medicine. 
after the research phase of his life is over, Vesalius settles into the monotony of being a Count Palatine and personal physician to the Emperor Charles V, who suffers from massive overeating and, of course, from gout. This frustrating new life, far from the pleasures of the university, serves as a reminder of the way that political power has sometimes sought to appropriate, control, and smother original thinkers. Vesalius dies in mysterious circumstances on the Greek isle of Xanthos while returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Vesalius, a keen student of the history of anatomy, has to have been familiar with the anatomical teachings of Marc Antonio della Torre, director of the Department of Anatomy at Pavia, who, according to Vasari, used Leonardo da Vinci as an illustrator in the classroom. Vesalius has to have known of Luca Pacioli, the mathematician whose book On Divine Proportion contains Leonardo's illustrations and is published in Venice in 1509. Albrecht Dürer may have met Leonardo and have studied under Pacioli. Dürer certainly was a so-called Vitruvian and imitator of Leonardo as much in matters of proportion as of technique and he introduces these Renaissance values to the Netherlands from 1520 onwards, at a time when both Vesalius and the woodcut artist of the Fabrica, Jan Stefan van Kalkar, would have been very receptive to new learning. It's sometimes been assumed that humanism did not affect natural philosophy, what we call science today, and medicine, and how they were taught in 16th century Italy. But it's now more apparent than before that the humanist task of translating, editing, and restoring classical texts is an enormously important one that gives a fresh impetus to the new science, especially when combined with a critical approach to those texts themselves in the light of experimentation and systematic observation. In this respect, Vesalius is very much a part of the humanist tradition. The first body of medical works from antiquity to be taken up by humanists is the body of writings called the Hippocratic Canon, attributed to Hippocrates of Kos, an elusive figure of the 5th century BC. The influence of Celsus is perhaps more direct, since his work is already encyclopedic and written in Latin, which means that no translation is required to print his work De Medicina for a wider Renaissance audience. Latin as a language is more widely known in the Renaissance than Greek. Galen, however, is far more influential during the Renaissance. He's well known in Latin translation by way of Arabic from the original Greek. The task of decanting Galen from medieval Arabic begins in the 13th century, 
And in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, there's a huge amount of activity in editing, retranslating, and publishing Galen. In fact, there's something of a Galenic revival during this time due to the work which philology and medicine play in establishing the standard editions of Galen. To Hippocrates, Celsus, and Galen should be added the towering figure of the 11th century physician Avicenna, who is translated into Latin in the 12th century and constitutes the foundation of Greek-Arabic medicine for several centuries. Avicenna's canon is printed a dozen times before 1511, and that's very early. Vesalius comes from a medical family, and some of his forebears have served the imperial and various noble courts as physicians. He grows up in Brussels, as well as Louvain, in the years 1514 to 1533. He undertakes medical studies in Paris from 1533 to 1536. Then he moves to Padua, a great center of medical learning in northern Italy, where he serves as professor at the university from 1537 to 1542, undertaking many dissections at Bologna and profiting from these years to prepare the fabrica, and the abbreviated version abstracted from it, the epitome. Vesalius is well grounded in ancient and Arabic texts, but he's also conscious of having learned very little about human anatomy while studying at the University of Paris. This tension between classical theory and anatomical practice is to be found throughout his life and works. As Vesalius writes in 1546, three years after the Fabrica has been published, Silvius, his Paris professor, whom I shall respect as long as I live, always started the course by reading the books on the use of parts by Galen. But when he reached the middle of the first book, the anatomical part, he announced that this was too difficult for us, just beginning our studies to follow, and that it would be troublesome for him and for us. Therefore, he omitted the subsequent books as far as the 14th, and then read the following. As a result, he completed a book in five or six days without ever calling our attention to the fact that Galen contradicts himself elsewhere, as he frequently does, and without indicating that Galen said things which are false. He brought nothing to the school except occasionally bits of dogs. I'm left very much with the impression that Vesalius is frustrated by the uncritical gaze cast by Silvius at the orthodoxy of Galen, for example, as well as the lack of opportunity for students like Vesalius himself to challenge that orthodoxy through anatomical demonstrations on human material. Well, this conflict with Silvius is to prove long-lasting. It's particularly in Padua, in northern Italy, that Vesalius has the opportunity to combine theory 
with practice. Here, anatomy is taught standing over human cadavers. Here, in the heartland of the Renaissance, is a tradition of medical illustration that seeks to reproduce accurately what the viewer actually sees. Here, Vesalius first begins to distance himself from the authority of Galen. Padua is one of Europe's greatest centers of medical learning during the Renaissance. Nancy G. Sirizi, the historian of science, notes, At Padua and Bologna, universities that had been centers of medical instruction since the 13th century, a standard and highly traditional curriculum of lectures on set books was in the course of the 16th century supplemented and consequently reduced in importance by the expansion and development of private medical teaching and of public anatomical and botanical instruction. And anatomy at Padua in particular early produced very striking and widely celebrated scientific results in the shape of the achievement of Vesalius. At the same time, Padua is still a notable center of Aristotelian natural philosophy, a tradition that embraces Avicenna but tends to discredit Galen. The significance of Padua in the 15th and 16th centuries goes well beyond striking and celebrated scientific results or a hypothetical Aristotle project. The University of Padua is the center of Italian learning, most directly implicated in the birth of the modern scientific revolution, which is fundamentally an Italian invention. Copernicus, Vesalius, Harvey, Gilbert, Descartes, Hobbes, all of these great thinkers are obliged to sojourn in Padua in order to gain a grasp of the revolutionary teachings of Fabricius, Galileo, and others. Remember that Leonardo does medical illustration in the classroom in Pavia. So the example of Leonardo reminds us that Padua does not invent the metaphor of the human machine. Leonardo, if anything, is associated with Pavia. But Padua capitalizes on the invention, incorporating it in a whole approach to study the mechanisms underlying the structure and functions of living organisms as well as the heavens. By this means, Paduan scholars like Vesalius are able to use classical authorities as a written platform from which to inquire closely by dissection into the Book of Life, which is then interpreted using mechanical metaphors. Vesalius has his own distinctive view of classical and Islamic authors. He refers repeatedly to Hippocrates, Aristotle, Galen, and Avicenna, although never once mentioning Leonardo da Vinci. According to Vesalius, Hippocrates was a divine figure in the history of medicine, to be distinguished from some of the medical quacks of the 16th century. Hippocrates wrote most fully concerning the task of the physician and concerning broken bones dislocated joints, and injuries of that sort.
A study of philosophy, and generally Aristotelian philosophy, is an indispensable part of the medical curriculum in late medieval and Renaissance universities. The key passage of Aristotle is in De Sensu et Sensato, where he writes that it's further the duty of the natural philosopher to study the first principles of disease and health, for neither health nor disease can be properties of things deprived of life. Hence, one may say that most natural philosophers and those physicians who take a scientific interest in their art have this in common. The former end by studying medicine, and the latter base their medical theories on the principles of natural science. Such a pedagogical unity between philosophy and medical studies, which themselves were based on a combination of tradition, classical texts, observation and experiment, give to Aristotelianism an important role in the development, at least, of biomedical science. The main features of Aristotle's scientific thought of interest today are his first-hand observations on living things. He records the life and breeding habits of some 540 species, embryological investigations of the developing chick, accounts of the development of octopuses and squids, anatomical investigations of mammals, attention to the heart and vascular system, and the use of scientific diagrams to accompany his texts. Aristotle is surely more scientific than Plato in the sense that he makes actual observations, even though he throws them hodgepodge into a common-sense system that is highly speculative. The main problem Vesalius finds with Aristotle is his tendency to develop theories on human anatomy by analogy with other animals. As a result, Aristotle strays away from experimentation and observation, which characterize his work on lower animals, to the realm of speculation about humans. For example, Vesalius objects that the femur, in birds, as in horses and pigs and other quadrupeds, deceived Aristotle and Galen in Book 3 of On the Function of the Parts, because in these the femur is not visible as it is in man. But I must keep for the appropriate place the inaccurate information which Aristotle handed down to posterity in his book On the Common Movement of Animals because of his ignorance of the femur and humerus in quadrupeds and birds. Vesalius is occasionally brutal in his attacks on Galen. In Book Two of the Fabrica, for example, he writes that Galen has been misled by a figment of his imagination in writing of the flexion of the human thumb, given that he's deluded by his apes and in this respect is accompanied in his errors by a full chorus of professors of anatomy. Vesalius is still more passionate when it comes to criticizing Galen's successors, who have, in his view, perverted, oversimplified, or merely misunderstood Galen's teachings. For example, Vesalius writes, the carelessness and almost unbelievable ignorance of Galen's successors and their dissections have been noted many times in previous chapters and will have to be noted again hereafter in this and following books. And this is no less the case in respect of their description of the sacrum and the coccyx. It seems to me that the words inadequate and superficial could with justice be applied to the anatomical knowledge 
of those who merely handed on to posterity the descriptions of Galen. The clear implication of such a position, I find, is that the science of anatomy is a self-correcting enterprise, one that should not be grounded in immutable dogmatic beliefs as reflected in ancient texts, but one that should be based on a critical reading of those texts in the light of the tireless, methodical observation of nature, the book of life itself. Vesalius devotes considerable attention in the Fabrica to the perfection of God's creations, to the proportions of the human body as well as to the functionality of every organ and limb of that body, which underscore the mastery and wisdom of God, the workman. He draws the perfectly proportioned picture of an admirable, marvelous, functional, and brilliantly designed creation of God's, a living workshop a being containing processes, moving parts, ropes and pulleys, and a protective shell which contains the lodging house and instrument of the immortal soul. This shell, by the way, is the cranium. In this respect, Vesalius is heir to a rich heritage going back at least to Aristotle and Galen, for whom the body has been well designed by the creator or demiurge and consists of parts marvelous for their functionality. Vesalius modifies this view from classical antiquity, adapting it to the zeitgeist of his own age, the High Renaissance. Vesalius expresses his vision of the human machine in rhetorical and political terms, implying in the preface to the epitome, dedicated to the son of Charles V, the future Philip II, that a wise emperor may see an interest in elevating knowledge of God's instrument, the human body. Vesalius writes, And when your spacious spirit shall one day rule the whole world, you may perhaps at times consider it pleasant to be acquainted with my work and to regard it as a situation wretched and unworthy of the greatest emperors, kings, and consuls, that in the pursuit of studies so varied the harmony of the human body, which we shall publish to the world, should lie constantly concealed, that man be completely unknown to himself, 
and that the structure of instruments so divinely created by the great artificer of all things should remain unexamined, since it is by the function of these instruments that those things we look upon as most and almost solely important are brought to pass. Vesalius suggests that the human body is perfectly coherent, in other words, well-planned. It's regulated by three principles. The first, he says, is surrounded by immovable bone, with no muscular instances. The third by muscle, and the second by something between these, consisting partly of bone and partly of muscle. If the human body has these particular characteristics, it's by divine design, a design that on close analysis proves to have been correct, for example in the fact that the thumb is beautifully positioned. In discussing cartilage, he writes that the wise creator of the world, realizing how important the function of cartilage in joints would be, not only provided bones in mutual contact with smooth and slippery cartilage, like a sort of crust in the manner described above, but in some joints, in addition to these cartilages, provided a third. Later on, he writes of the arthrodia, it's as if nature constructed this type of articulation in a simple joint, where she had decided that the bone would move scarcely at all. In fact, the fabrica is full of references to the intention of God and the purposes of nature. Similar sentiments are expressed in the epitome, for example, where Vesalius says, The great creator of all things has carefully advised that man should live as long as possible and that his species, never failing, should continue to exist forever. According to Vesalius, the body is a marvel wrought by God. The body is an instrument of the immortal soul, a domicile that, because in so many respects it corresponds exactly to the universe, was aptly known to the ancients as the microcosm. In the Epitome's canons of proportion, we also see clearly that Vesalius believes there's a standard or ideal form in the human body which it's the work of anatomists to appreciate. Could Vesalius have developed an original vision of the human body which will fundamentally discredit the idea of an organism created by God and elevate the new idea of a structure containing thousands of intricate mechanical functions and processes? Vesalius doesn't seek to reduce the body 
by making metaphorical allusions to a wide variety of machines or mechanisms. He seeks rather, in using such metaphors, to uncover the hidden intentions or reason in the mind of the creator or supreme artificer in so devising the body that its highly instrumental organs are perfectly adapted. In other words, for Vesalius, there's a profoundly spiritual basis to his vision of the human machine. It's important to note that not just Renaissance views of technology, but also pre-Socratic, Aristotelian, Neoplatonic, and Vitruvian metaphysical and aesthetic traditions come together in the work of Vesalius. He opens the book of life, describes what he sees in words, and has drawn from sight elaborate exploratory charts or maps as it were, of the microcosm of the human body based on close observation during public dissections. The only way his public can understand this utterly new inner world is by means of cadavers and allusions to technology, both supported by medical illustration as well as metaphors. Well, that's it for the first podcast in the Wild Trekker series of seven podcasts, which I call The Human Machine. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works, from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And Evidencia is spelled E-V-I-D-E-N as in November, T-I-A, Evidencia. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Tracker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Tracker, accompanied by Pascal Desmeul on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Tracker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs. All rights reserved. <laughs>